Vladimir Putin declares two separatist control regions of Ukraine independent and sends in troops. The Biden administration backs away from harsh sanctions. And Justin Trudeau's crackdown on dissent in Canada isn't over yet. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Do you like your web history being seen and sold to advertisers? No? Me neither. Get ExpressVPN right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, you may have noticed recently that inflation is now at 40-year highs, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the markets right now. Well, now would be a great time for you to look at the bills that you're paying every month and think, how do I lower those bills? Well, one thing that you're spending too much money on, you probably haven't thought about in a while, is your wireless bill. Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, they all overcharge you for the same service you could be getting from Pure Talk at a fraction of the cost. That's why I'm a customer and why you should be one as well. And listen to this. They've got unlimited talk, text, and unlimited data, plus hotspot for 55 bucks a month. That is correct. More data for less money. Join the hundreds of thousands who are saving every month with Pure Talk. You can go to puretalk.com right now, find the plan that's right for you, and then find the phone that's right for you, or you can bring your own. They have great deals available. I got Pure Talk myself. I also got it for my parents. This month only, enter promo code Ben Shapiro. You will save an additional 25% off your first three months. That's puretalk.com. Promo code Ben Shapiro. Go check them out right now. PureTalk.com. Promo code Ben Shapiro. And this month only, when you enter that code Ben Shapiro, you save an additional 25% off your first three months of Pure Talk USA coverage. Get away from the big guys and get over to PureTalk.com right now. Alrighty. So over the past few days, Vladimir Putin has solidified his has solidified his control over the Russian-backed separatist territories in Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk. The history of these regions we'll go into in just one second. Bottom line is this. One of the chief goals that Putin had when this conflict broke out was change the goalposts. So the goalposts started with you should not essentially ingest more areas of Ukraine into Russia. It already annexed Crimea. These particular breakaway, quote unquote, republics, which are essentially just Russian backed dictatorships, Donetsk and Luhansk. These have been considered disputed territory by Russia and Ukraine for a while, really since 2014 and the Russian invasion of Ukraine under Barack Obama. Well, now it seems as though the West is kind of willing to just allow these territories to be considered Russian proxies for the foreseeable future without any real sort of serious consequences. At least this is how the West is signaling today. So over the weekend, President Putin ordered troops into two Russia-backed separatist territories in Ukraine, hinted at the possibility of a wider military campaign, and laid claim to all of Ukraine as a country, quote, created by Russia in an emotional and aggrieved address to the Russian people, according to the New York Times. Russian state television then showed Putin signing decrees late Monday, recognizing the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics and directing the Russian defense ministry to deploy troops in those regions to carry out, quote unquote, peacekeeping functions, which is a way of essentially saying all your base belong to us. And that's basically what what Putin is doing in these areas. The order was condemned as a violation of international law and Ukraine's sovereignty by several nations at an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council on Monday night. But guess what? Russia sits on the U.N. Security Council, one of the most useless organizations in world history. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., said he calls them peacekeepers. This is nonsense. We know what they really are. It was not immediately certain whether the Russian troops would remain only on that territory controlled by the separatist republics or whether they would seek to capture the rest of the two Ukrainian enclaves whose territory they claim. And so it's unclear if a long-feared Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine had already begun. Now, it doesn't really have to begin. The question is whether Putin has already won. Putin has already gotten the entire West to basically acknowledge that these particular regions are now Russian sovereign territory, or at least Russian satellite territory. The entire West has basically bought into the idea that, that Joe Biden said, supposedly mistakenly, just a few weeks ago, where he essentially said just the tip to Putin. Well, if you just take these, if it's a minor incursion, we won't do anything. You remember that, that Biden said this not all this long ago. This is clip nine. This is like three weeks ago. He went out there in that somnambulant press conference and basically just said, okay, well, if Putin does something, are we really going to do that much about him if he just decides to, you know, take a few territories here or there? The idea that NATO is not going to be united, I don't buy. I've spoken to every major NATO leader. We've had the NATO-Russian summit. We've had other, the OSCE has met, et cetera. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable. If it invades, and it depends on what it does, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. Okay, so he gave the game away several weeks ago, and Putin obviously picked up the signal. He's like, okay, well, you know, these areas that we already de facto control, we will take sort of legal 
de jure control of these areas and the world will do very, very little. So Putin gave a speech over the weekend in which he basically laid claim to all of Ukraine. And you could see this as a predicate to either a vast full-scale attack on Ukraine where he takes over the entire territory, or you could see it as him laying out what his actual goals are and then saying, well, listen, I'm compromising with you guys. I'm not actually taking all of Ukraine. I'm just taking these particular areas. Why don't you leave me alone? And if that happens, my guess is that Putin gets away with it. Right? If, he, if he does the minor incursion that, that Joe Biden talked about and then had to try and backtrack, if he does that, I think that Putin probably wins. I think he probably gets away with it. And maybe he's already won. Because again, he just sent Russian troops directly into Ukrainian territory. Now, the fig leaf for years had been that these are Russian-backed separatist troops, that they're homegrown Ukrainian troops who are just sympathetic to the Russian regime. And then the Russians had been sending them materiel and they'd been using them as, as in sort of a proxy war against the Ukrainian administration in the aftermath of 2014. But now the fig leaf is completely gone. You got Russian troops in these regions and the world seems to be kind of edging around doing like a little bit of sanctions, but not tremendous sanctions. Anyway, here's Vladimir Putin's speech laying out what he actually wants. He says that these two areas of Ukraine ought to have their independence, by which he means I ought to rule them. Remember, when Vladimir Putin says that some place ought to be independent, he doesn't mean it ought to be independent of him. He means it ought to be independent of the West. I deem it necessary to make a decision that should have been made long time ago to immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic. And I would like to request the Federal Assembly to support, to back this decision and ratify the agreement of friendship and mutual help with both republics. We will draft this document and sign these documents in the near future. Okay, he continued along these lines, did Putin. Obviously, you're listening to a translator speaking for Putin right there and Putin in the background. He also says that Ukraine is not an actual territory. Ukraine was created by Russia. Now, this is language that sounds very much like the language that China uses with regard to Taiwan, that Ukraine is actually sovereign Russian territory. And if we decide not to take all of Ukraine, you guys should consider it a gift. I would like to start by saying that the modern Ukraine is completely, was completely created by Russia. To be more exact, by Bolsheviks, Bolshevik communist Russia. This process has started almost immediately after the 1917 revolution. Okay, so here he's attempting to say that Really, we belong together. And the Ukrainian people really want to be a part of the new Soviet Union, the new Russian Union Federation under, under Vladimir Putin. Now, here's the reality. The history of Ukraine is pretty complicated. But when Ukraine was treated as a Russian territory by the USSR, things did not go particularly well for the Ukrainians who were murdered en masse by Stalin. So you can see why a lot of Ukrainians are not particularly thrilled to be inside the ambit of Russian power. Alrighty, coming up, we'll talk about the history of Ukraine because Putin is now claiming that it's just sovereign Russian territory. We'll get to that in one moment. First, you've heard me talk about the Ring video doorbell a lot. Well, it's not just the video doorbell. It's also Ring Alarm, which makes sure that all areas of my house are being watched at all times. It means I know what's going on in my house all the time. Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring. Best of all, you can easily install it yourself. I did it myself. It's simple to set up. It is easy to use. I got all of the sensors for motion, doors, and windows that'll work on any house or apartment like yours. I get notified directly on my phone whenever anything is detected. That's why I've partnered with Ring. So like me, with Ring Alarm, you and your loved ones can rest easy knowing that Ring is helping to protect your home today. It's more than just security. You can add sensors that help protect your home from flood and freeze and fire as well. The best part, professional monitoring gives the ultimate peace of mind. It's part of a Ring Protect subscription. There are no long-term commitments. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call you, can request emergency services, and that professional monitoring is an amazing deal. You get that award-winning professional monitoring for less money than most professional alarm companies. I rely on Ring all the time. I had a lot of people over at the house yesterday for a wonderful event. Let me tell you, it was great to know that I had Ring monitoring the property at all times. You'll feel similarly safe. Ring has an award-winning alarm. Go to ring.com forward slash Ben. Get a great deal on a Ring alarm home security kit today. That's ring.com forward slash Ben. The New York Times has a pretty good rundown on the history of Russia and Ukraine. Say, Ukraine and Russia share roots stretching back to the first Slavic state, Kievan Rus, a medieval empire founded by Vikings in the ninth century. But the historical reality of Ukraine is complicated, a thousand-year history of changing religions, borders, and people. The capital, Kiev, was established hundreds of years before Moscow, and both Russians and Ukrainians claim it as a birthplace of their modern cultures, religion, and language. Kiev was ideally situated along the trade routes that developed in the ninth and 10th centuries and flourished only to see its economic influence diminish as trade shifted elsewhere. The many conquests by warring faction and Ukraine's diverse geography with farmland, forest, and maritime environment on the Black Sea created a complex fabric of multi-ethnic states. 
The history and culture of Russia and Ukraine are indeed intertwined. They share the same Orthodox Christian religion and their languages, customs, and national cuisines are related. But Ukrainian identity, politics, and nationalism have been irritants in Russia since the feudal czarist times that predated the Russian Revolution. Ukraine is seen by many Russians as their nation's little brother and should behave accordingly. Eastern Ukraine, which came under Russian influence much earlier than the West, still features many Russian speakers and people loyal to Moscow, but the happy brotherhood of nations Putin likes to paint, with Ukraine fitted snugly into the fabric of a greater Russia, is dubious. Parts of modern-day Ukraine did reside for centuries within the Russian Empire, but other parts fell within the Austro-Hungarian Empire or Poland or Lithuania. Cliff Kupchin, chair of the Eurasia Group, says Putin's argument that Ukraine is historically subsumed by Russia is just not right. While the themes of Putin's speech were not new for the Russian leader, Kupchin said the breadth and vehemence with which he went after all things Ukrainian was remarkable. Again, the question is whether this is a gambit in which Putin is really claiming sovereignty over all of Ukraine, in which case prepared the battle of Kiev, or whether he is saying this specifically so that when he backs off and then says, you know, all we want is the separatist regions to just be recognized by international law, the West sees a way out and just lets him have this thing without any fight or any loss of life to avoid war. Or to, and we're not talking about a war in which the West actually gets directly involved, by the way. We are talking about a war in which there's essentially a guerrilla uprising against a Russian invasion. And there's a long scale in the city battle for the fate of Ukraine, where the West is funding all of the all of the legitimate forces inside Ukraine. And Russia is funding all the separatists and sending in troops directly. Now, Putin went even further than this. He suggested that Ukraine is a U.S. colony with a puppet regime, which is hilarious. Since, again, Ukraine has basically thrown out its own Russian puppet. They, they threw out a, a president who was essentially loyal to Putin years ago in the Orange Revolution. And that has prompted so much of the consternation from Russia over all of this. The truth is that what Putin would like most of all is to make Ukraine he had another Russian puppet. So here's Putin reversing the reality on the ground. Do Ukrainians know about these choices? Do they understand that their country has become not even a protectorate, now it's a colony with puppets at its helm. The privatization of the state has led to the fact that the authorities that call themselves the authorities of patriots doesn't have interest of the nation. Okay, so he's saying that the Ukrainian authorities are disloyal to the Ukrainian people who really truly want to be part of Russia. Now, this sort of logic, by the way, can be extended. And this is why you're starting to see surrounding nations getting very, very fearful about what the West response is going to be on all of this. If you look at the population centers that surround Russia, if you look at Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia, you look at the Baltics, you look at Kazakhstan, if you look at all those areas, what you're looking at is areas with heavy presence of ethnic Russians and a lot of Russian-speaking populations. So the, the logic that Putin has used to seize control of these separatist regions could certainly be extended to NATO countries. And because what he said originally is, you know, these areas of Eastern Ukraine, they really want to be part of Russia. That's really what they want. They have separatist battle, we win. And th that's sort of the history that's happening in Eastern Ukraine. Already coming up, the threat that Putin is now providing against Ukraine, it's not really exclusive to Ukraine. He's going to go after some of the NATO countries in a rather creative way. We'll get to that in just one moment. First, you may have noticed that everything is really, really expensive right now, and there are serious problems in the supply chain. Well, that really holds true at auto parts stores. You're going to go to the auto parts store, you need a part, you need it like right now, and they're just going to order it online, and then they're going to upcharge you. Why wouldn't you just go directly to rockauto.com at home or in your pocket directly? Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, 100% more for the exact same auto parts at a chain store or a new car dealership? rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com. Shop for the auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers that you need. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil. They've even got new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog, it's unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same exact parts? They've got an amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Head on over there, rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Shapiro in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. The AP has a good rundown on what exactly happened in these separatist areas that, that Putin is now using as his staging ground and essentially has annexed full scale. The AP points out when Ukraine's Moscow-friendly president was driven from office by mass protests in February 2014, Russia responded by annexing Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula and then threw its weight behind an insurgency in the mostly Russian-speaking eastern Ukraine region known as Donbass. In April 2014, Russia-backed rebels seized governmental buildings in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, those are the ones we're talking about right now, proclaimed the creation of people's republics and battled Ukrainian troops and volunteer battalions. 
The following month, the separatist regions held a popular vote to declare independence and make a bid to become part of Russia. Moscow didn't directly accept that motion, instead just using the region as a tool to keep Ukraine in its orbit, saying if you if you don't allow these places to essentially have an independent governing body, then you never know, we might just walk into Kiev. Ukraine and the West accused Russia of backing the rebels with troops and weapons, and Moscow lied and said that they weren't doing that, although it was pretty obvious that they were. And remember, this actually did have some ramifications outside of just the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Remember that Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 that sort of disappeared? That was actually shot down over eastern Ukraine on July 17, 2014, killing 298 people. And an international probe concluded it was downed by a Russian-supplied missile from the rebel-controlled territory in Ukraine. Moscow is still lying about all of that. In August 2014, thanks to all of the Russian help for the separatists, there was a massive defeat for Ukrainian troops in August 2014, and they signed what was called the Minsk Agreement in September 2014. That observed that that document was supposed to create a ceasefire, a pullback of Russian-backed fighters, an exchange of prisoners and hostages, and some new sort of governing privileges for the separatist-backed areas in Ukraine. That deal collapsed, and then large-scale fighting resumed. 14,000 people have died in this conflict, by the way. It's just amazing what the world chooses to focus on. I mean, there are these conflicts that are happening all over the world on a regular basis, but we only focus on conflicts at sort of odd times when the media decide that we ought to focus on the conflicts. In January, February 2015, there was another Minsk agreement. It was signed between Ukraine, Russia, and the rebels and envisioned a new ceasefire and a pullback of heavy weapons and a series of moves toward a political settlement. And then there was sort of a frozen conflict in Ukraine all the way from 2015 all the way to 2022. It was a major diplomatic coup for the Kremlin, according to the Associated Press. It obliged Ukraine to grant special status to the separatist regions. And now Moscow is basically recognizing their independence in violation of the Minsk agreement. So as I say, the logic that Putin originally used to back the separatists was these are Russian backing, Russian speaking areas. They want to be part of Russia. At the very least, they want to be independent and aligned with Russia. They don't want to be part of Ukraine that's aligned with the West. And therefore, we should provide material and essentially foment civil war in these areas. Well, now think about NATO countries. So Putin has used a tool here that NATO is really susceptible to because there's a difference between Russia just crossing borders and Russia funding uprisings inside NATO countries. How do you intervene in a Latvian civil war? How do you intervene in a Lithuanian civil war? Does NATO activate when there are a bunch of separatists, quote unquote separatists, in some of the Baltic regions backed by Moscow? And then once they carve out areas, can Russia just walk into those areas without any sort of severe punishment? Because that's the pattern here. That's what we're seeing. Now, maybe Putin goes further. I, I tend to think he probably won't at this point. I think that Putin's goal here is to consolidate those areas and use this as a model for consolidation of other areas, maybe inside NATO countries. Because this is how you break NATO. You do it bit by piece. You don't, full, you, you don't actually just full-scale invade Latvia or Estonia or Lithuania and then hope that NATO doesn't respond. Instead, what you do is you back guerrilla forces inside those areas, create bloody warfare situation, have them sign separatist agreements, back the separatist agreements, and then march in the Russian troops. So if you're Lithuania, 5% of Lithuanians are ethnic Russians. If you're Latvian, 25% of Latvians are ethnic Russians. And Russians comprise nearly half of Riga, which is the capital of Latvia. 24% of Estonians are ethnic Russian. 47% of the people living in Tallinn, which is the capital, speak Russian. 22% of Kazakhstan, which is not a NATO member and is a very oil-rich region, is Russian. 89% of Kazakh citizens speak Russian as well. So you could certainly see the, the Russians, if they felt the necessity, they don't really have to because Kazakhstan has been allied with Russia for a while. You could certainly see Russia attempting to cement its relationship with Kazakhstan. So this is a, a real move by Putin. And honestly, it looks as though nobody is really willing to stop him. And, and that really should not be a surprise. I mean, the fact is that Joe Biden and his predecessor, Barack Obama, the Democratic Party in the Oval Office, were extremely conciliatory toward Moscow. I know we're all going to pretend now that this is all about Trump, but there is something to the fact that nothing happened between Russia and Ukraine for the entire period of Donald Trump's presidency. He was too unpredictable for Putin to actually peg down. Putin didn't know what to do with Trump. He didn't know what to do with the Democrats. You'll recall that it was during the 2012 election. By the way, this country would have been so much better if Mitt Romney had been elected in 2012. I cannot even name the ways. There are one million ways in which this country would have been far superior if Barack Obama had lost his reelect effort in 2012. From the, from the critical race theory orientation of the left in the United States to our foreign policy, this country would be so much better to our national. That, like One of the great modern tragedies of history is that Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama in 2012. It's just a, a devastating inflection point in American history. I really believe this, that the 2012 election was a super important election that people still have not 
fully gauge the impact of. In any case, in 2012, Barack Obama was literally caught on a hot mic with the then Russian puppet controlled by Putin and he, Dmitry Medvedev. And he said to him, if you guys leave me alone until the election, I will provide you flexibility after the election. Within two years, Russia had invaded Ukraine. And you'll recall that this became an issue at the debates between Obama and Romney because Romney had been asked who was America's chief geopolitical foe in 2012. And Romney said, Vladimir Putin. And Barack Obama's answer was, well, you know, why are you still living in the 80s? Well, I mean, he wasn't. And Barack Obama, it was a stupid line at the time and the media cheered it because the media are a bunch of sycophantic, slobbering jackasses who just massage the buttocks of the Democratic Party. Here was Barack Obama making a fool of himself. Most of us saw this at the time. But in retrospect, he looks particularly foolish. Governor Romney, I'm glad that you recognize that al-Qaeda is a threat. Because a few months ago, when you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not al-Qaeda. You said Russia. In the 1980s or now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because, you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. But, Governor, you know, when it comes to our foreign policy, you seem to want to import the foreign policies of the 1980s, just like the social policies of the 1950s and the economic policies of the 1920s. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. Okay, and, and he's cheered for this. And Joe Biden, whose chief job in 2012 was to be the bloviating dolt that he was, but, you know, with full control of his bloviating idiotic capacities. I'm not sure which was scarier, Joe Biden in control of his capacity or Joe Biden not in control of his capacity like he is now. This is Joe Biden in 2012 talking up the, the myriad wonders of Vladimir Putin. So, and the second thing is, Governor Romney's answer, I thought, was incredibly revealing. He acts like he thinks the Cold War is still on. Russia is still our major adversary. I don't know where he's been. I mean, we have disagreements with Russia, but they're united with us on Iran. The only way we're getting, one of only two ways we're getting material into Afghanistan or our troops is through Russia. They are working closely with us. They've just said to Europe, if there is an oil shutdown in any way in the Gulf, they'll consider increasing oil supplies to Europe. That's not, this is not 1956. It's not 1956, guys. I mean, when, when tanks rolled in to Hungary from Russia. Now you just have tanks that are rolling across the border of Ukraine. It's, it's, it's completely different, guys. Completely, completely different. And now the, the White House keeps signaling that they think that, that Vladimir Putin might go for even more. And so Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, who also served under Barack Obama, he says that Violet is planning, uh, that the Russia is planning an extremely violent move. We believe that any military operation of the size, scope, and magnitude of what we believe the Russians are planning will be extremely violent. It will cost the lives of Ukrainians and Russians, civilians and military personnel alike. But we also have intelligence to suggest that there will be an even greater form of brutality because this will not simply be some conventional war between two armies. It will be a war waged by Russia on the Ukrainian people to repress them, to crush them, to harm them. So how exactly is the West going to respond to any of that if Putin decides to go further? And how will the West respond right now when the simple fact is that the Putin-backed Russian forces have already essentially invaded? The invasion may already be over and we're not even talking about it. It may be that Putin already got his goal, which was to effectuate the seizure of these particular territories in Ukraine because he wishes to actually use this as a pattern in order to foment exactly the sort of thing in some of the Baltic republics that are actually are members of NATO. So you can break up NATO with actually having, without actually having to fire a direct shot across the bow with regard to NATO. Alrighty, coming up, we'll get to the United States, our response. We are deploying our most valuable assets to try and stop all of this. You know who I'm talking about, Kamala Harris, of course. First, what if you could lower your mortgage rate without adding years to your loan? You could potentially save hundreds of dollars a month and tens of thousands of bucks long term. Well, fortunately for you, that is all possible when you call American Financing, America's home, for home loans. You'll start with a free mortgage review from one of their salary-based mortgage experts so you can understand all of your home loan options. From flexible terms to competitive rates, even debt consolidation, they can do all of that and more. You can really save up to a thousand bucks a month and you can choose any term 10 years and over. Custom loans doesn't get any better than this. So what exactly are you waiting for? Make the 10-minute phone call right now. Learn about options before those rates go any higher. And by the way, you should do it like right now because the Fed is going to raise the interest rates in just a month here. And when they do, that'll have an impact on the mortgage rates in a pretty serious way. So now is a great time to refi. You could skip two mortgage payments. You might close in as fast as 10 days when you call 866 866- 
866-721-3300. That's 866-721-3300. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net, NMLS 182-334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Go check them out, 866-721-3300. That is 866-721-3300. So how's the United States responding to this? Well, we did deploy Kamala Harris, one of our great minds on both domestic and foreign policy, to Munich to talk about what to do about Russia. And as always, she was a wild success. As she is with everything that she does, she's extraordinarily articulate. She knows exactly what she's talking about. She has solutions to all of our problems. Or alternatively, she's never read a briefing book because she has cruised on her ambition and her intersectional bona fides for literally her entire career. And so she has no idea what the hell she's doing. So here is Kamala Harris being asked a question and just completely falling short as per our usual arrangement. As the president talked about in his speech, um, we are aware that, again, when America stands for her principles, and all of the things that we hold dear. Um, it requires sometimes for, for us to put ourselves out there in a way that maybe we will incur some cost. And in this situation, um, that may relate to energy costs, for example. But we are taking very specific and appropriate, I believe, steps to mitigate what that cost might be if it happens. Now, what's hilarious about this answer is what she was asked was, will this all deter Russia? And she says, yes. And then she was asked, well, it hasn't deterred Russia. And she's like, right, but it might. And also, I don't know what I'm talking about. She's so intensely bad at this. And so it's kind of a mess. So you have Jen Psaki from the White House yesterday saying, you know, we'll impose some new sanctions. So what exactly are those sanctions going to be? Are they going to be the world crushing sanctions that we were supposed to see where Russia was cut off from, for example, the SWIFT international banking system? No, not quite that. So she says, we have anticipated a move like this from Russia and are ready to respond immediately. President Biden will soon issue an executive order that will prohibit new investment, trade, and financing by U.S. persons to, from, or in the so-called DNR and LNR regions of Ukraine. So we're going to issue sanctions against any U.S. people who are involved in funding Donetsk and Luhansk. This EO will also provide authority to impose sanctions on any person determined to operate in those areas of Ukraine. The Departments of State and Treasury will have additional details shortly. We will also soon announce additional measures related to today's blatant violation of Russia's international commitments. To be clear, these measures are separate from and would be in addition to the swift and severe economic measures we have been preparing in coordination with allies and partners should Russia further invade Ukraine. We are continuing to work closely with our allies and partners, including Ukraine, on next steps and on Russia's ongoing escalation along the border with Ukraine. So, no crushing sanctions in response to what Putin just did, which is effectively annex a couple of territories more, right? He took Crimea back in 2014. So now he's going to essentially just annex these parts of eastern Ukraine. And we'll issue sanctions on those parts of Ukraine, but not on Russia directly and not on Putin and not on any of his cronies and not on the oligarchs. None of that. The logic here from the left is constantly, well, we can't actually issue the sanctions because once we've issued the sanctions, then our threat to issue the sanctions is gone. Okay, well, that is what we would call in law school an argument that proves too much. It means that you should never issue sanctions. Because if all you have, the only bullet you have in the chamber is these sanctions and nothing else, then when exactly do you activate when you pull the trigger? Like they've not made clear at any point here. The other thing you could do is you could just hit them with the world crushing sanctions now and say those will be relieved the moment that you stop this nonsense. That is what Donald Trump did with Iran, for example. So the the... Logic of the left here and um, from the Biden administration seems to be if we do too much here, then what are we going to threaten them with later? And the answer is, if you just keep threatening and you never do it, then Russia knows that the threat is empty. Here is Adam Schiff. Fresh off of his Russia. Is Russia collusion catastrophe explaining Russia policy on CNN? I think it, that uh, once you've imposed sanctions, you lose whatever leverage you have. Uh, by threatening, uh, hey, if you go forward, this is what we're going to do. Once you've imposed sanctions, uh, then then Russia is in the position of saying, well, then we might as well go, go forward. We're already suffering the penalties. OK, or alternatively, if they're that crushing, then they should want them relieved. This, this idea that you hold everything you have in abeyance with regard to economic sanctions, economic sanctions, by the way, I'm not aware that economic sanctions have ever actually effectuated serious change in foreign policy. I really, really, can you name a time when he, there, there's a book that came out recently reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, the name escapes me, talking about the history of economic sanctions. Even with regard to South Africa apartheid, it didn't actually end South African apartheid. That was domestic conversation and unrest and, and all the rest that led to the inevitable opening of South Africa as it should have, but it was not primarily sanctions that it led to that. 
Economic sanctions have, ever, have had very little effect with regard to effectuating foreign policy goals in this area. According to the New York Times, the limited nature of the initial sanctions appeared intended to allow the United States and its European allies to hold in reserve the more aggressive sanctions they've been threatening to impose on Moscow if Putin sends Russian armed forces into Ukraine and to allow for the increasingly slim possibility of a diplomatic solution. The European allies condemned the Russian action as a violation of international law, but the relative restraint of the American steps could also reflect debates among the allies over what action by Russia should trigger the full sanctions and the difficulty of developing a unified and proportional response to incremental steps by Vladimir Putin. Well, I mean, that's right. When you issue very, very weak sanctions, that really does betray that NATO is not together, which is what Biden betrayed because he said it out loud just a couple of weeks ago. And Biden had said it in a conference call. The administration said that Russian troops in Donetsk and Luhansk alone may not warrant swift and severe sanctions that the administration has been previewing thus far. Now, what they could be doing is sanctioning the oligarchs. So Russian oligarchs have been lobbying the foreign offices not to sanction them. And so far, they've not been sanctioned. Maybe they should be sanctioned. Maybe we should go after the oligarchs who really are the powers in Russia because they're the ones with all of the money. Germany, for its part, has suspended the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. They've taken steps to halt the process of certifying Nord Stream 2, according to Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Scholz said his government made the decision in response to Russian President Vladimir Putin's recognition of the independence of two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine that he said marked a serious break of international law. Now, the reality is we never should have greenlit Nord Stream 2 in the first place. What we should have done is said, if you want Nord Stream 2, then you need to never, ever go across those borders again. You need to stop that. And then we'll discuss Nord Stream 2. Now we are going to go from the position that you're going to be good actors when the evidence is that you're bad actors all the way through. Because here's what Putin is gaming out. What Putin is gaming out, if he has any brain at all, which he does, is, okay, so they halt production for like a second. But in the long term, Europe does not have the capacity to provide, to provide its own power. They've hamstrung themselves. They've stopped creating nuclear power plants. They, they got rid of coal. They got rid of natural gas. They got rid of oil. Their power is way too expensive. And so they need cheap natural gas from somewhere. So they can cut off their nose to spite their face. But you really think in, a, in like a year from now, the domestic population in Germany is going to be willing to pay twice their energy price because they don't want Nord Stream 2 because of Donetsk and Luhansk. This is the, this is the actual calculation that Putin is going through. And here's the thing. He's probably right. He's probably right. Because the West did not stand up to him. Now, Listen, I'm not going to pretend that this is all of the West making. It's of Vladimir Putin's making primarily. But none of this happens if the West is not perceived as fragmented and weak. And that happened under Joe Biden. It is not a coincidence that the pullout from Afghanistan happened just a few months ago. And right after that, Putin started getting extraordinarily aggressive on Ukraine's border. Right now, China's setting it out, by the way, because China's sort of waiting aside to see what happens here. China's figuring, OK, if Putin doesn't get slapped with too much here, then maybe we make a very aggressive move on Taiwan. If, however, Putin really gets slapped down, then, then maybe we'll wait on it a little bit. But it doesn't seem like the West is mobilizing in fashion harsh enough to actually prevent Putin from doing the Hong Kong on these eastern areas of Ukraine. Announcing some sort of domestic rule whereby he can then leverage that into full-scale control of areas of other countries or of other territories that were promised independence by treaty. And Afghanistan remains in the background of everybody's mind here. It is amazing to watch, by the way, Ezra Klein has an entire piece in the New York Times today talking about how terrible the situation is in Ukraine. And then he tries to relieve responsibility from the Biden administration for that. He literally opens his column. 95% of Afghans don't have enough to eat. Nearly 9 million are at risk of starvation. The UN's emergency aid request and more than $5 billion is the largest it has ever made for a single country. David Miliband, president of the International Rescue Committee, wrote the, human, the current humanitarian crisis could kill far more Afghans than the past 20 years of war. And, he, and Ezra Klein, who, of course, is a, a leftist dogmatist, he says, we bear much of the blame. We've turned a crisis into a catastrophe. He says that it really isn't because we pulled out. He says, in August, President Biden withdrew American troops from Afghan soil. But even, even as we left Afghanistan's land, we tightened a noose around its economy. He says, I was more sympathetic than many to the chaos that accompanied the American withdrawal. We lost too many of our own and left behind too many who had risked their lives at, their, at our side. But the core of the catastrophe catastrophe stemmed from failures previous administrations had covered up or refused to fail. So even now, he's still defending Biden. He's just saying we, we botched the withdrawal and we botched the aftermath. The reality is this is full-fledged the result of an appeasement-oriented foreign policy that the Biden administration is pursuing on nearly every front. They're, appear, they're, they're attempting to appease Russia. They're attempting to appease Iran. This is all part and parcel of the broader view that our enemies are now taking of us, which is that we are a paper tiger and a weak horse, which under Joe Biden, we are. Truly, in the same day that 
Russia is effectively just taking over parts of Ukraine full scale the way they did Crimea. The same day, there's a report in the Wall Street Journal that the United States is nearing a return to the Iran nuclear deal with an agreement that could be completed as early as the next couple of days. With, with a regime that is not moderated one iota and in fact has caused civil war in Yemen, has continued to foment conflict in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in the Gaza Strip. And this administration desperately wants to sign an agreement with the Iranian mullahs. You wonder why America's enemies are on the march? Because why wouldn't they be? This administration is a joke to them. And, and Putin is just proving it. He's proving it full scale for all of these folks. Now, as I say, the, the Chinese, they always have the long view of this sort of stuff and they can wait to see how everything works out with regard to Ukraine. But that does not mean that China is not going to make some sort of aggressive move on Taiwan if they feel that there is an opening to do so. And right now you got to wonder if, if they don't feel like that. Why wouldn't they feel like that? So we'll continue to bring you the latest on that situation as it evolves. In a second, we're going to get to the situation over in Canada where the traffic is no longer blocked along the bridges, but Justin Trudeau maintains the Emergencies Act. That guy is definitely not Fidel Castro's son, by the way. Just want to point that out because I think it's important. We'll get to all that in just one second. First, if you want to truly give an incredible gift, you have to try PaintYourLife.com. This is an awesome, awesome service. So I have a painting that sits above our couch at home. It's a painting of me and my wife and two of our three kids. We need to re-up, actually, by going to PaintYourLife.com. They take a photo of you, your kids, friends, pets. It can be photos that are multiple photos. They can actually compile them all into one painting, and then they turn it into a beautiful portrait you can hang in your home. It's fantastic. You can get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price or combine photos of people or places you love into one painting. Choose from a team of world-class artists. Work with them until every detail is perfect. The user-friendly platform makes it easy to order a custom-made hand-painted portrait in less than five minutes. It is fast. You can receive your portrait in as little as two weeks. Send any picture, yourself, your kids, family, a special place, someone you love who isn't around anymore, cherished pet, even an action shot of you rappelling down from a helicopter to help Tom Cruise. You can do all of that stuff. You can make it into a portrait with paintyourlife.com. At paintyourlife.com, there is no risk. If you don't love that final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's a great deal. 20% off plus free shipping. To get that special offer, text the word Ben to 64,000. That's Ben to 64,000. Again, text Ben to 64,000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply available at paintyourlife.com slash terms. Again, text Ben to 64,000 to get started. Alrighty, we'll get to Justin Trudeau, our northern neighbor, tyranny with a smiley face in just one second. First, America is under assault. That threat is coming from within, which is why we are exposing just who is destroying America's institutions and why. The Enemy Within began streaming exclusively at The Daily Wire last week. It features acclaimed journalist and expert in national threats, Lee Smith as he uncovers a political coup orchestrated by America's ruling elites to generate their own wealth and power at the expense of America's safety and freedom. The groundbreaking first episode should be required watching for every American affected by COVID regulations, which is, you know, all of us. In it, Smith reveals shocking details about both Anthony Fauci's role in hiding critical information from the American public, as well as the unanswered questions surrounding the origins of the virus. Check out the trailer. What if everything we think we know about our leaders our society and our relations with the rest of the world is wrong. America is facing two major challenges. One is the Chinese Communist Party. However, the most significant threat comes from within. You're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the world. Okay. Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about. We've already seen evidence of how the elites want to run the United States. They're modeling themselves after Chinese autocracy. For over a decade, the People's Republic of China has stood publicly accused of acts of cruelty and wickedness that match the cruelty and wickedness of medieval torturers and executioners. Chinese spy as her driver for 20 years. We're not talking about one person infiltrating senior levels at the CIA or the White House. We're talking about an entire elite class throughout the political, corporate, academic, cultural, and media establishment. My name is Lee Smith. I've been a journalist for more than 30 years. This is the most astonishing espionage and infiltration operation in history. What you're going to see in this series will shock you. This 
is the enemy within. It's shocking stuff. It's tremendously important. Lee Smith does a great job with this. The Enemy Within is streaming now exclusively at The Daily Wire. So if you're not a member, now is the time to change that. Head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe and join us today. Also, there are a lot of excellent books that are just too controversial for your average publisher. Not here at The Daily Wire. That is why we have started our own publishing imprint called DW Books. And we are proud to be publishing two books that are actively fighting the left's monopoly on storytelling. The first is 12 Seconds in the Dark by Sergeant Mattingly. The book is the true story of what really happened the night of the tragic Breonna Taylor shooting. Mattingly is a 20-year police veteran. He takes readers inside his department's response and debunks the lies that have been recklessly shared with the public. DW Books is also publishing Fiery But Mostly Peaceful by Julio Rosas, who pulls back the curtain and sets the record straight on the Black Lives Matter riots that broke out across the country in 2020. Julio was reporting from on the ground. He gives his firsthand experience at the riots, exposing the media's attempts to convince Americans that the fatal and destructive riots were actually peaceful and wonderful and flowers and just just great. I am grateful to have these brave truth tellers on board. Cannot wait for you to hear their stories. Both of those books are available for pre-order right now on Amazon or anywhere you buy books online. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Alrighty, meanwhile, the tyranny in Canada continues. So Justin Trudeau admitted yesterday that the blockades have been lifted and that traffic is moving freely between the United States and Canada. But he says the state of emergency is not over because here's the beauty of states of emergency. They're never over so long as the tyrant wishes them to extend. So here is your smiley-faced tyrant, Justin Trudeau. He's so, Justin Trudeau, with his, with his very measured high voice and his, his not looking like Fidel Castro at all. Stop that, you. Stop it. Here's Justin Trudeau. But even though... Uh, the blockades are lifted uh, across border uh, openings right now. Uh, even though uh, things seem to be resolving very well in Ottawa, this state of emergency is not over. It's never over. It's magic. Uh, so, so what is the state of emergency justifying at this point? According to the UK Daily Mail, a Canadian MP says the bank account of a single mom with a minimum wage job has been frozen because she donated 50 bucks to the Freedom Convoy. Conservative lawmaker Mark Strahl says the mom, named only as Brianne, has had her life ruined for donating a small sum to the anti-vax mandates protest. Strahl shared Brianne's story as concerns grow that scores of ordinary citizens will no longer be able to pay for food and basics after their accounts were frozen for donating to a group of protesters. Brianne is a single mom from Chilliwack working a minimum wage job. She gave 50 bucks to the convoy when it was 100% legal. She has not participated in any other way. Her bank account has now been frozen. This is who Justin Trudeau is actually targeting with his emergencies actors. Right, but he has, but he says things like this. And even though he's worn blackface 100,000 times, as you know, a very convenient form of camouflage or something at Halloween parties, dressed up as a black person. And even though he's been a terrible prime minister that no one really likes, the emergency is not yet over. And in fact, says Justin Trudeau, if you voted against the invocation of the Emergencies Act, well, you know, that just means that you don't trust the government to make important, momentous. Yes, that's correct. We don't trust the government to make important, momentous decisions because you suck at this. I can't imagine that anyone who votes no tonight is doing anything other than indicating that they don't trust the government uh, to make uh, incredibly momentous and important decisions at a very difficult time. Yeah, I do not trust you to make momentous and important decisions, like invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time since it was actually initiated. There was a predicate act, a predecessor act, that had been invoked a couple of times. This is the first time since like 1970 when it was written that it's actually been been invoked because there are a bunch of people who are setting up jacuzzis in the middle of the street in Ottawa. Ottawa's police chief, by the way, is just embracing this and just going full scale. He says, if you're involved in the protest in any way, we'll find you. We'll track you down. It doesn't matter if the protest ends. We'll track you down well after the end of that protest. And we will unleash all law enforcement powers at our disposal in order to, by the way, did, did, has this happened anywhere on earth with regard to the Black Lives Matter protests slash riots that involve $2 billion in direct property damage in the United States? Like, has this, has any police chief ever said anything remotely like this about Black Lives Matter? Of course not, because it's the cause that matters. It is not about the actual law violation. Here is Steve Bell, who is the, the Ottawa police chief talking about this. 
If you are involved in this protest, we will actively look to identify you and follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. Absolutely. We, we, this investigation will go on for months to come. It has many, many different streams, both from a federal uh, financial level, from a provincial licensing level, from a criminal code level, from a municipal breach of court order, breach of court injunction level. It will be a complicated and time consuming um, investigation that will go on for a period of time. You have my commitment that that investigation will continue and we will hold people accountable for taking our streets over. In fact, the Ottawa mayor came out, his name is Jim Watson. He said, you know, all those trucks that we impounded and that, that we sort of grabbed so that we could move all the other trucks, what if we just kept them? What if we just seized their property? And like, we'll figure out a way to sell them and keep them. Like, this is full-scale tyranny, guys. This, this has nothing to do with property rights. It has nothing to do with freedom of speech or dissent. None of that matters because Justin Trudeau decided that this was an emergency. Okay, this is not under any legal definition an emergency. Here is, here's the mayor of Ottawa talking about just seizing property. This is costing a small fortune for the taxpayers of Ottawa. And that's one of the reasons why under the Emergency Act, I've asked our solicitor, our city manager, how can we keep the tow trucks and the campers and the vans and everything else that we've confiscated and sell those uh, pieces of equipment uh, to help recoup some of the costs that our taxpayers are absorbing. Okay, well, that's that's great. So they're just seizing property and maybe they'll just sell it. Maybe they'll just sell it based on nothing. Perfect. Meanwhile, in a, a piece of quote-unquote police brutality that would have made national news in the United States had, of course, the cause been something that, that people cared about. Remember, this is the same national news media ginned up a story out of nothing about American border agencies whipping migrants across the southern border, and it didn't happen. They were literally holding reins, and they treated it as though it was a whip. Okay, that was the American media. Here, you have video of a woman being run over by a horse in Canada, and apparently seriously injured. The Ottawa police originally denounced the reports of the woman's death as misinformation, which of course is correct, but then they claim no one was injured at all. And then the Ottawa police announced that their special investigations unit was going to investigate. And they found that, yeah, it turned out the lady got trampled by the horse, which you could see because it's on video. Here's a lady at an Ottawa protest being trampled by an Ottawa mounted police person. Come on through. What is happening here? Wow. What is this lady doing? Trampling. Trampling horses. Trampling. Stop it. Stop it. Okay, so that's everything is going well in Ottawa, but at least Justin Trudeau gets to maintain his pride. That, that's the really, really important thing. By the way, the New York Times reported last weekend that police in Ottawa had arrested protesters at gunpoint. Prominent Canadian journalists suggested that this was wrong. Now, apparently, the New York Times reporter, Sarah Maslanier, who shares a byline on a contested piece with colleague Natalie Kitroff, she says, we saw these arrests transpire firsthand. In addition, we have multiple interviews from people this happened to, including David Paisley, quoted in the article, what really is blowing my mind is the wave of journalists saying we didn't see what we saw. Well, welcome to how you guys normally cover issues in the United States, gang. The New York Times at its very finest. So you know, for, for all of the folks who, who tend to believe that government in the West could never go tyrannical, I just remind you that government in the West just went tyrannical to a wide chorus of nothing from the mainstream media that the government in Canada has no actual justification for maintaining this status of emergency. By the way, they have no they have no actual justification for maintaining their COVID restrictions at this point. Boris Johnson in Britain announced over the weekend that essentially we're done. He said, we have no more pandemic restrictions in Britain. This is Boris Johnson, not the United States, this is in UK. First, we will remove all remaining domestic restrictions in law. Until the 1st of April, we will still advise people who test positive to stay at home. But after that, we will encourage people with COVID-19 symptoms to exercise personal responsibility. Okay, but meanwhile, in Canada, they're like, we're not going to do any of that, even though the emergency really doesn't exist. It's important that Justin Trudeau maintain the image that Canada's authorities are in complete control. They will force you to mask just for the sake of it. They will force you to vax just for the sake of it at this point. And if you disobey... They'll freeze your bank account. Maybe you get trampled with a horse. I mean, it depends on how things are going that day. Maybe you have your truck seized by the government. This sort of stuff ought to scare you if you love freedom in free countries at all. It turns out that freedom and threats to it come in many different guises, from full-scale guerrilla warfare and invasion in Ukraine to top-down tyrannical authority in Canada. 
Those threats to freedom are very real. These are not the same threats of freedom, nor are they of the same scale, because presumably at some point, Justin Trudeau will be removed from power and the Emergencies Act will end in Canada. We can at least hope. But the fact that governments act like this, even in the so-called liberal West, should remember should remind everybody that when the government seizes authority, it is very, very reluctant to give it up at all. Okay, meanwhile, I'm going to bring you an update on the media propaganda surrounding this Florida bill that the left has successfully dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is, of course, not what the Florida bill does. So I've talked extensively about this to the consternation of many on the left who wish to indoctrinate your kids into their views about sexual orientation and gender identity. They wish that your child will learn from them, not from you. You should have no say in how your kids are raised whatsoever. So this bill, which basically said that kids in K through three should not be told about sexual orientation or gender identity issues at school. That is reserved for the home. If you want to talk about that with your kids, you talk about that with your kids. You get to teach your kids what you want to teach your kids. You get to teach your kids whatever morality you want to teach your kids. And it's none of the school's business to indoctrinate small children into left-wing gender ideology and sexual orientation ideology, which seems eminently feasible and practical and frankly, inarguable from the perspective of a parent. And remember, we are in the midst of a parent revolt in this country, the likes of which I have not seen in my lifetime, where parents are finally beginning to grasp the reality, which is the left, wishes to seize the minds of their children and, and use them to weaponize against their own parents. And this is what the left really wants. And never have I seen this more clearly than when it comes to this Florida bill. So there was an amendment that was proposed to Florida's bill that would explicitly require schools to inform parents of their child's sexual orientation if the kid comes to the school and says, I think I'm gay or I think I'm transgender. It's not sexual orientation, it's gender identity. Or if I think I'm bisexual. The school must then inform the parents. The amendment was filed by the bill's sponsor, Representative Joe Harding, Republican of Williston, on February 18th. that changes the bill to instead not only require disclosure, it requires schools to tell parents within six weeks of learning that the student has any sexual orientation other than straight. Now, I'm not sure what that precisely means, learning that the, that the student is, if the student is engaged in sexual activity at school, I assume, or if the student starts telling all of their friends at school and then the teacher finds out about it. Okay, but, but the bottom line is this. Why should there be a quote-unquote right of privacy between the student and the teacher with regard to the sexual orientation of the student? Notice the logic of the left here. The logic of the left here is that parents are abusers. Teachers are protectors. That's the logic of the left here, which means that they should be able to indoctrinate your kids in any way they see fit, from critical race theory to the malleability of male and female to the morality of all sorts of sexual activity. By the way, if you think that this has no impact on how people act and think you're out of your mind, of course it does. The left wouldn't be doing it unless they cared about that. And by the way, the polls show this. In, it, there, there's a recent poll that came out from Gallup. I know we're all supposed to pretend that this poll does not exist or that it doesn't matter because everybody is just whatever floats your boat. But it turns out many parents actually do care about the happiness of their children and believe that sexual, that, that sexual behavior is connected in many ways to the future happiness of their child. There's a poll that came out from Gallup. What it showed is that people who are of the, the oldest generation born before 1946 in the United States, identify it as LGBTQ at the rate of 0.8%. People who were born between 1997 and 2003, so the youngest cohort in American society, now identify as LGBTQ at a rate of 21%. Do you think that's evolutionary biology that's happened here? Or do you think that maybe this is social contagion and that this is the, the society essentially incentivizing people to identify this way and to build their entire personality and build their entire life around their sexual orientation and to experiment with as many different types of sexual experience as they possibly can, and teaching them that true fulfillment lies in hedonistic sexual desire rather than placing limits on what you experiment with and trying to build your life around, I don't know, getting married to a person of the opposite sex and having a family. Environment does matter here. To pretend that it doesn't is to ignore the actual data. The actual data suggests that this is not just biology. This is not just that 21% of people were always LGBTQ in 1946. It was just they were all repressed. Sure, I'm sure that's what it can't be that we have an entire culture that is pushing on behalf of more permissive sexual hedonism and identity. If you love that sort of stuff, fine, so be it. But that's not the way I'm raising my kids. And there are many parents who are not raising their kids to believe that all forms of sexual experimentation and sexual identity are morally equivalent. And you know what? It's not the job of the schools to cram that down. I care about my kids more than you do. I care about my kids more than the schools do. I care about my kids more than Gavin Newsom does. So Gavin Newsom believes that if your kid goes to school and tells the teacher, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I might be bisexual or I'm thinking I might be a member of the opposite sex, the teacher has no duty to tell the parent whatsoever. And if you say that the teacher has a duty to tell the parent that and, and actually allow the parent into the circle 
that the parent ought to be the head of because the parent is the person who has a duty to the child. And you have delegated that duty to the teacher only insofar as the teacher does the will of the parent in educating the child. Gavin Newsom believes that the parents are the enemies of the, of the kids. That's what, that's what he believes. He tweeted out, this is nothing short of state-sponsored intimidation of LGBTQ children. It will put kids who are already navigating stress in physical and psychological danger. For the sake of these kids, don't do this, Florida. So the idea is that parents should have no authority over children, none. Teachers should have authority over children. Parents are child abusers. Now, there's been no evidence in the state of Florida. Like if a kid goes home and says, I'm gay mom and dad, and they beat the hell out of the kid, that's child abuse and CPS shows up. If the kid goes home and says, I, I believe I'm a member of a different gender than my biological gender, and the parent abuses the child, there are laws on the books to prevent that sort of thing. But what, what the left is now saying is that if your kid goes to school and starts engaging in radical gender ideology or starts engaging in left-wing belief systems about sexual orientation and the malleability of sexual behavior and the innate goodness of all different forms of sexual behavior, equivalent goodness of all of these things, the teacher should hide that from the parent. Should. Has a duty, in fact, to hide it from the parent. And if you say that they should tell the parent, this means that you are a bad person. It means that you are a bigot and probably a child abuser. You know, the, the militant attempt to separate kids off from their parents is despicable. It's the worst thing going on in American life right now. The worst thing going on in American life right now is an attempt by the left to suggest that parents do not have any duty or authority over their kids, that the state has the duty and the authority, and therefore can protect kids from their parents without any accusation or evidence of any abusive behavior on the part of the parent. That's vile. According to WFLA, the amendment instructs revision by replacing the relevant section with protocol for how school leaders can develop a plan using all available governmental resources to tell parents of their child's sexual orientation through an open dialogue in a safe, supportive, and judgment-free environment that respects the parent-child relationship and protects the mental, emotional, and physical well-being of the child. So they're trying to portray this as though you call the parent in, the kid says they're gay. You call the parent in, you say, this kid says he's gay, beat him. No, it's not. It literally says, through an open dialogue, this is the language of the bill, through an open dialogue in a safe, supportive, and judgment-free environment that respects the parent-child relationship and protects the mental, emotional, and physical well-being of the student. It bears mentioning the state of Florida already makes it mandatory for teachers and other school personnel to report cases of abuse to the Florida Department of Children and Family Services. And then WFLA acknowledges requiring schools to report sexual orientation to parents may not always lead to abuse. Individual actions of parents and families are unpredictable and are typically on a case-by-case -case situation. The amendments as filed do not discuss how mandatory disclosure would affect mandatory abuse reporting by school personnel. There's not even an accusation of abuse. This is the whole point. In the view of the left, if you raise your child in a way that they do not like, you are abusive. That is the, that is the assumption. The assumed baseline is that you are an abuser of your own child if you teach your kids morals, that, morals and values the left does not like. And the morals and values the left likes is that all sexual orientation is fluid, all gender identity is fluid, and all of it is equally morally equivalent. And not only that, all is equally likely to lead to human happiness. And in fact, if you say no, this makes you less likely to lead to human happiness. And if you don't indoctrinate your kids in this, then we will forcibly take your kids away from you. And we will indoctrinate your kids in this. And we'll never inform... So the, the rule that the left would prefer like in the state of California, is your kid needs an Advil because they have a headache. Can't do it. Can't do it. You're a minor. Can't give you a medicine without calling your parents. You come in, you say, I'm transgender. Not only will we not call your parents, we'll refer you to a Planned Parenthood so you can get some testosterone. That is the world that the left would like to build. And this is part and parcel with a broader leftist vision, which is to pervert the minds of children against their parents via the mechanism of state schooling. This is what the radical left would want and increasingly what the mainstream left would want. Because otherwise, what is here to object to? Seriously, what's here to object to? Again, there are abuse laws on the books. They exist in every state in America. You are saying that parents cannot be trusted, teachers can be trusted. I would love to see the evidence of this. Really, what is the evidence? What On a percentage basis, on a percentage basis, not an absolute basis because parents are parents and there are many of them, many more parents than teachers. On a percentage basis, how many kids are being, do you think, abused in school by teachers as opposed to how many kids are being abused in the home by parents on a percentage basis? Really? Because, uh, again, I'd love to see the evidence that teachers care more about kids and have a better stake in kids' future than parents do. Explain that one to me. The fact that the left finds this in any way controversial demonstrates their actual goal here, which is to control your kids. That's what they want. They're not going to let, let go of that goal. And then they're going to claim, 
that, of course, they have to control all of your kids and they have to indoctrinate them in whatever they see fit because, after all, there might be some kids who are victimized when there are already laws on the books to prevent the victimization of these children. I know that, that COVID, COVID was a horrific, horrific thing. COVID did allow a window into how kids are being taught and parents are not liking what they see. And the left, instead of recognizing that parents are the most valuable members of our society because they are literally raising the people who are going to be paying all the bills and forming the future of the country. The left has decided parents cannot be trusted. Those parents might have too much of a stake in their kid's future to allow their kids to just be treated like Rousseau would treat a meal, wandering the forest and screwing everything in sight to the lovely laughter of the left. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. All righty, we'll be back here later today with an additional hour of content. In the meantime, go check out our newest podcast, Morning Wire. On today's episode, they report on the homelessness crisis in California. That episode is available right now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to tune in. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about The Ben Shapiro Show by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out some of our other Daily Wire shows. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Elliot Feld. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our production manager is Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Bradford Carrington. Editing is by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Fabiola Cristina. Production assistant, Jessica Crand. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. John Bickley here, Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief. Wake up every morning with our show, Morning Wire, where we bring you all the news that you need to know in 15 minutes or less. Join me and my co-host, Georgia Howe, for daily coverage of all the biggest stories on Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 